You know, when I was a kid, my friends and I loved watching old black and white Japanese monster movies dubbed into English. Any of you remember those? A few of you. Yeah. I mean, there was Godzilla. It had to be the classic of all of them. There was another one, I think, about some kind of giant worm that ate Paris or something like that. I mean, we would laugh at all the inconsistencies that we would see. How, you know, one word would get translated into an entire paragraph in English. Now, the sounds coming out of the actors' mouths seldom agreed with the movement of their lips, which made it hard to follow at times. But, but as a kid, I learned early on that if you just watched their behavior, you could figure out what they meant. You know, it's confusing when what we say gets out of sync with what we do. Uh, Mixed messages are hard to understand. I've learned that when we say one thing, but our behavior communicates something else, people don't hear our words. Now, the Bible has a name for that. It's called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And Jesus says that it'll not only impact your relationship with one another, but it can have devastating results when it comes to your heart and passion for God. I mean, to see exactly what Jesus is saying, you need to turn with me to Mark uh, chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, as we continue in our series through the book of Mark. You can follow as I read, and your Bibles are on the screen. Mark begins this way. Now, the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Now, in this passage, we find ourselves in the final week of Jesus' life. This is the week before Passover, where hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of pilgrims are descending upon Jerusalem so that they can worship and offer sacrifice in the temple there in Jerusalem, which is probably the reason Jesus stayed with friends in Bethany. I mean, trying to find accommodations in Jerusalem at this time of year would be like trying to find a room on Super Bowl weekend. I mean, just impossible. And so we find Jesus and his disciples rising early in the morning in order to make the three-mile trek into Jerusalem to go to the temple. And somewhere along the way, Jesus gets hungry. He sees a tree in full leaf, a fig tree, and he approaches it expecting to find figs on it. And when he doesn't, he curses it, saying, May no one eat fruit from you ever again. Now, this is one of those passages that just leave you scratching your head, doesn't it? I mean, why in the world would Jesus curse the fig tree for not having figs when Mark tells us explicitly it wasn't the season for figs. Well, as a landscape architect, uh, that intrigued me. And, and as I did some research, I discovered a few things, that the production of fruit on a fig tree is unique to other fruit trees. I mean, the average fruit tree uh, would produce 
uh, fruit in this order. The first thing it would show would be a flower, and then it would put out leaves, and then it would uh, put out the fruit. And then at the end of the harvest season, it would be harvested. Now, a fig tree is not like that. Uh, a, a fig tree will produce, first of all, uh, a flower, but it's hardly noticeable. Secondly, it produces fruit. I mean, you can see on the screen the new fruit on a, a fig tree. So it produces the fruit, and then uh, after the fruit is there, the leaves begin to appear. In fact, would you go back to a slide? There, that's, that's the one. There, there's the new fruit right there. And you can see it's being produced without any leaves. And then it'll produce leaves. And then that fruit ripens and is harvested, not at the end of the season, but, no, just keep it on that slide. Um, But at the end of the second season, it's harvested at the end of the second season. So an average tree has fruit harvested at the end of the first season. But a fig tree, the fruit doesn't mature until the end of the second season. So what you have with a a fig tree is you can expect um, on any fig tree that has leaves to find the first year's fruit. There you go. Now, that's on the brand new growth and it's brand new fruit. But at the same time, you can expect to see second season fruit, and that's the larger one, uh, and that's on the old growth, and it's ripening. So when a tree has leaves, I mean, you can expect to find something to eat on that fruit tree. I mean, it's obvious. You can find some second season almost ripened uh, figs. Uh, And that's, by the way, why Mark tells us in the text, he makes a point of saying the fig tree has leaves. Now, that second season fruit may not be completely ripe yet, but it is edible. And somebody who's hungry enough would, would look to eat some of the fruit uh, from the second season. And Jesus is obviously hungry enough. He's looking to down a few figs, and all, a few almost ripened figs, you could say. But, but that really doesn't answer the question, does it? I mean, didn't Mark say it's not the season for figs? Well, a closer look at that word season would reveal that this is a word used to describe also the season of harvest. I mean, can you see what he's saying? The harvest time has not come yet. So it would be extremely reasonable to expect to find some ripening or completely ripe figs on the old growth since the figs had not been harvested yet. But when Jesus examines the tree, he can't find any fruit on it. He finds none. So he curses it. Now, why would he do that? Well, the tree was being a hypocrite. It had succulent foliage indicating that there must be fruit. It looked healthy on the outside, but a closer examination proved that something was wrong. It was being hypocritical. Uh, I mean, it was saying one thing by outward appearance, but in reality, it was 
something else that was true. It had no fruit. It was being a hypocrite. And so Jesus curses it. Now, you need to know that Jesus was going to use this fig tree as a symbol for the nation of Israel. And what happens in the rest of this passage is a dramatic acting out of the cursing of the fig tree. Look at verse 15. You'll see what I mean. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. So Jesus enters Jerusalem, goes immediately to the temple, and when he enters, he just becomes irate. He grabs the money changers' temples and he throw, uh, tables and he throws them over. He chases the buyers and sellers out of the temple. Now, you need to know this isn't the first time Jesus has done this. I mean, three years earlier, at the beginning of his ministry, he did the same thing. Only then he chased them out with a whip. Now, you need to also know that there are two words used for temple here in the text. Uh, or in the New Testament. One refers to the inner courts, as you can see on the screen, of the temple. The other refers to the larger temple area, which would include the court of the Gentiles. Now, that's the one used here in this text. Now, this area of the temple, you can see it on the screen, is all the area around here. Uh, That's the court of the Gentiles, the, the larger court area. It can hold thousands upon thousands of people. And it's here where the merchants set up their tables. They had turned the outer courts into a veritable flea market, buying and selling stuff. Now, why did they do that? Well, the average pilgrim coming to Jerusalem had learned from experience that you don't go to the trouble of wagging along an animal to be given as an offering uh, at the temple. No, you don't do that because the priest will never approve your animal that you bring with you. Instead, they want to sell you one of theirs. That's what they want to do, and they want to do it at an inflated price. They want to make money on you. So it's a whole lot easier to buy a pre-approved kosher lamb than to wag one all the way from home. And what else that took place at the temple is that the Jewish male would have to pay his temple tax once a year. But the priest had made a rule that taxes could only be paid in Jewish shekels, in half shekels. And so if you lived outside the area, you had foreign currency, and you came in Jerusalem uh, to pay your tax, you had to change your foreign currency for shekels and half shekels. And they accommodated you at the temple, yeah, but an exorbitant exchange rate. I mean, they were ripping the people off. They were making money, and it was all run by the priests. But not only that, thirdly, people were using the temple, Mark indicates, as a shortcut. Uh, Between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, they were on either side of the temple. 
And so they would be entering through uh, the Golden Gate on the east, going all the way to Warren's Gate on the west, bringing all sorts of profane things through the temple. And in doing so, they were degrading the purpose of the temple. And the temple wasn't supposed to be a house of prayer. I want you to close your eyes just for a moment. I want you to imagine you're there in the temple and you're you're in the outer court. And you hear the sound of, of sheep and cattle mooing and bleeding. It's echoing off the walls. You're there to worship, though. But there are people pushing and shoving, trying to get their merchandise across the area. I mean, the sound of money being exchanged. I mean, you hear guys arguing about the unfair exchange rate. I mean, they're barkers peddling their ware. I mean, crowds of people pushing, people talking, bartering, engaging in conversation. And not to mention, your nose burns from the stench of urine left behind by all the animals. Now, with your eyes closed, I want you to to see if you can imagine what it's like to commune with God, what it's like to meditate on the Scriptures, attempting to listen to what God might be saying to your heart. Impossible! I mean, do you see it? No wonder Jesus was so upset. No wonder He did what He did. I mean, He walks in the temple. He sees one of the the big cedar tables stacked high with shekels and half shekels and foreign currency. And He becomes irate. He picks it up and tosses it over. And then He reaches and He grabs the the gate of a stick cage and rips the, the gate off the stick cage, releasing hundreds of doves, and they're flying around the area in circles. He grabs another table and throws it over, tearing a gaping hole in one of the stick pins, and now goats and sheep and cattle are running helter-skelter through the entire outer temple area, knocking over tables, this one holding clay pots, and they burst into a bazillion pieces. He looks up at the golden gate, seeing people coming through, using it as a shortcut. He runs over, grabs a table, and jams it up against the golden gate. Then he jumps up on the table, stopping the people from moving across the temple area. And with everyone watching, he yells, Is it not written? My house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you... You've turned it into a den of thieves. You see, the religious leaders were not just stealing financially from the people. They were robbing them spiritually. Can you smell the hypocrisy of it all? just like the fig tree, had the outward appearance of fruit, but no fruit. Israel had the outward appearance of a relationship with God, but no relationship with God. They had no heart of relationship left. They had the outward signs. They went through the motions of worship. 
the acts of worship without ever engaging in the heart of worship. You, you ever do that? Mouth back the words of a song without engaging your mind, much less the heart. Or, or maybe during the worship service you plan your week. You, you, you use the program to write down your to-do list or your grocery list. I mean, Israel's spiritual life here had withered to just the outward forms of obeying the law rather than engaging the heart. They had the leaves of a relationship with God with no heart of a relationship with God. You see, their heart had withered. They had traded desire for duty, which emptied their heart of passion and life and spirit. And you can see the hypocrisy that's there in the next verse, verse 18. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. And so Jesus leaves the city that evening and waits until the next day before he addresses the issue of heart and passion with his disciples. Look at verse 20. It says, now in the evening, I mean, now in in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. So the next morning, they get up to walk into Jerusalem. Peter notices the fig tree had withered. He says, teacher, teacher, look, the fig tree you cursed had withered. And Jesus says, have faith in God. Does that hit you as strange? It's kind of odd. It's almost as if Jesus is totally ignoring what Peter has said. And his comments take them off on a tangent. But do they really? I mean, many have read this passage and concluded that Jesus is just giving us a formula for doing the miraculous, for doing miracles. But if you look at it in context, you'll discover he's not giving us the secret of how to cause a tree to wither. He's giving us the secret of how to live so we don't wither. He's telling us how to widen space in our hearts for him. I mean, the heart of Israel had shrunk to almost nothing because they weren't placing their faith in God. Instead, they were substituting empty practices and meaningless rituals for a heart for God. They had quit trusting God, so the life of God within them had withered down to almost nothing, just like the tree they just passed. And so by saying, have faith in God, Jesus is saying, guys, you were created for more than this. Don't you know that the object of your faith needs to be God himself? So he's going on to say, when difficulties enter your life, don't let that choke out your passion for me. Instead, you've got to put your faith in God by reminding yourself of three things that every Christ follower needs to be reminded of. I mean, the first is that God's in control of all things. In other words, nothing happens to you in your life that He has not allowed. 
So you've got to remind yourself of that. Secondly, you've got to remind yourself that God is all wise. I mean, what he's allowed to come into your life has reason and purpose. You may not understand it, but he does. And the third thing every Christ follower has got to remind themselves of is that God is all loving, that what he's allowed to come into your life is really for your ultimate good. Therefore, you can trust him. In other words, if I don't have something in my life that I want or need or think I need, then I must not need it or God would make a way for me to attain it. You see, without reminding yourself of the character of God, what he's like is passion for you, then your passion for him will begin to wither, to shrink, to disappear. Now, secondly, he says, if you don't want your heart to wither, you've got to remember that uh, difficulties, mountains in your path are not barriers to your passion with God. Look, look at the next verse. He says, for surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now, now, once again, we can pull this verse out of context. It reads like a magic formula for doing miracles. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. I mean, he's using mountain as a figure of speech. It, it's used for difficulties and immovable objects in the Scripture. I mean, he's saying that you find those things in your path You've got to be careful because those things can keep you from a vital, exciting, passionate walk with God. Now, Israel had several of these in their their path, didn't they? Several mountains. I mean, hadn't God promised them that they would be a great nation? But they were under Roman rule. I mean, they, they were under Roman oppression. What happened to that promise that Roman rule was like a gigantic insurmountable mountain in their path. And they had another mountain, didn't they? That for 400 years, God had not spoken to the nation, hadn't sent them a single prophet, not a word from God. That was another mountain in their path. You see, mountains are any circumstances that cause us to raise doubt and fear in our lives that oppose the fact that we're to have our faith in God. Now, Israel had mountains. We've got mountains. Child diagnosed with cancer, that's a mountain in their path and the path of the parents. Your spouse comes to you and says, I'm throwing in the towel. I want a divorce. You have a mountain in your path. You get laid off from your job. Then you come face to face with a mountain. Now, if you're not careful, you'll read this passage and you'll think that, well, what this is telling me to do is I've just got to muster enough faith to convince myself that what's happening isn't really happening. But now that wouldn't be faith, would it? Not faith in God. That'd be faith in faith. That would be blind faith. And God has never asked us to exercise blind faith. He wants us to exercise an objective faith, and the object of our faith needs to be God and His character, reminding ourselves that, well, He's in control, He's all wise, He's all loving. So how do you handle these mountains that 
you find in your path to keep them from destroying your passion with God, well, you go to God and you're open and honest with Him. You, you talk about this thing in your past, path, your heartache, and your desire to see it removed. Uh, you, you tell Him everything you desire to have happen. But then you say, but I trust you that you know what's best. You, you know what keeps my heart from withering. You know what will cause me uh, to have a vital, life, passionate, growing relationship with you. I trust you for what's best. Now, notice that word doubt. That's a significant word in this passage. Do you know that word means to be pulled in two different directions, back and forth? Probably a better way to understand this word is the word debate. In other words, there's a mountain in your path. And you ask God to remove it, and God has promised, I'll remove it. But you start debating with Him about when and it'll be removed and where He's going to remove it and how He's going to remove it. In other words, uh, you, instead of resting in His the fact that He's all-loving and He's in control and He's all-wise, you begin debating with Him that you know what's best. You know, sometimes God removes the mountains from our path, but He always does it in His timing and His way. But, but there are other times He changes our perspective on the insurmountable mountains that are in our path. About 32 years ago, my wife Patty was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. It's an inflammation of the small intestines that creates discomfort at best and creates obstructions that can rupture and become life-threatening at worst. And when she was diagnosed, it was devastating to her. It was devastating to both of us. I mean, two times it's almost cost her her life. So we prayed repeatedly, God, you've got to remove this mountain. We want you to remove this mountain. Please remove this mountain. Then as time went on, our perspective began to change. But Patty began to see how having a chronic disease really has forced her to grow closer to God. And I've been able to see how Patty, through all this, tends to live life deeper than I do. Uh, she, she has developed a, an, an engagement with God that just makes me jealous at times and, and envious. I, mean, I, I love to hear her talk about her perspective on heaven. She sees things I can't see. You see, sometimes God removes the mountain that's in your path. Sometimes He leaves what seems to be a mountain and changes your perspective on it. But through it all, whether He removes the mountain or changes your perspective, He wants to widen your heart to make room for more passion for Him in your life. You see, a mountain in your life will either widen your heart for God or it'll wither it, but the choice is always yours. So a mountain doesn't have to become a barrier. 
It doesn't have to be a barrier to your passion for God, but Jesus concludes this passage by saying there is one thing that is a barrier. Look at verse 24. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you and whenever you stand praying, by the way, that's what they did in the temple when they prayed. They stood to pray. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I mean, can you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying difficulties in your path do not have to become barriers to moving closer and growing uh, more intimate in your relationship with me. But there is one thing that can become a barrier, and that's an unforgiving heart. It can destroy your passion for God. It's learning how to let go when, when you have been hurt, to Grant forgiveness when you have been wronged. Learning how to do that will begin widening your passion for God. But, but granting forgiveness, well, wow, that's not natural, is it? I mean, when you've been wrong, when your pride's been hurt, what do you naturally want to do? You want to get even, don't you? You want to make that other person pay. But Jesus is saying, no, no, I don't want you to do what's natural. I want you to do what's supernatural. Grant forgiveness to that person. In fact, it was George Herbert who said this, He who cannot forgive another breaks the bridge over which he too must pass one day. You see, granting forgiveness doesn't mean pretending that something didn't happen. That, that would be denial, wouldn't it? And granting forgiveness doesn't mean I'll forgive you if you promise never to do. No, that would be conditional. And granting forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting the offense. That would be Alzheimer's, I think. <laughs> but biblical forgiveness means remembering the offense, remembering the hurt, but choosing not to hold it against the other person. But what do you do with feelings to the contrary? Because they're there. Well, Corrie Ten Boone, in one of her books, tells the story of all the atrocities done to she and her family when they were in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. And after the war was over and they were released from the camp, she said she'd forgiven them, the Nazis, for what they had done. But those feelings came back and the thoughts, she just kept rehashing them over and over and over again. And after several months of sleepless nights, she decided that she would go visit her pastor. And she told the pastor what she was wrestling with. And he said, um, come with me, Corey. And took her to the bell tower. He said, Corey, when the sexton pulls the rope, the bell goes ding and dong and ding and dong, and it continues to ring as long as the sexton is pulling the rope. But there comes a time where he has to let go of the rope, and then the bell goes ding and dong and ding and dong, and then there's the final ding. 
He says, I, I believe it's the same way with forgiveness. In other words, he's saying forgiveness is letting go of the rope. But, but if you've been pulling on your grievances for some time, it shouldn't surprise you that those old angry feelings just keep coming back. Now, that's the ding and dong of the bell slowing down. You see, sometimes it takes time for our emotions to catch up with the decisions we make. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that uh, you can, the, the only thing that really has the power to stop you from growing closer to God in this passage is uh, unforgiveness. And you can remove the barrier of unforgiveness when you pray. That's what he's referring to when he says whatever things you ask. And when you do, you might be surprised at how freeing it is. You see, when you forgive another person, you do set a prisoner free, only you discover that prisoner was actually you. You were eaten up with unforgiveness. I mean, so do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying it's, it's hypocritical to embrace the forgiveness God extends to you without you extending it to others, but it's Far more than that, he's saying that if you want to grow closer to God, you want your passion for God to increase, you want to have a heart of worship inside of you that bubbles over, then you're never closer to the heart of God than you are when you extend grace and forgiveness to others that God has extended to you. Father, thank you for this confusing passage, but such a simple truth throughout. We, we don't want to live a life of hypocrisy. You have forgiven us. We want to forgive others. We want to be different than the way Israel turned out. Would you restore to us a, a heart of passion and desire for you as we remind ourselves who you are, your character, and the grace and the mercy you've extended to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you came prepared to give, offering boxes are out in the hall. And if you're here for the first time, we would love to put a name with a face. Please drop by the hearth room, third door on the left, and we would love to visit with you there. Hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and we'll see you back next week.